You are listening to the English language version of Birthing Resistance, Stories of Hospital Prison. I'm Elisa Jordan, a cultural anthropologist and postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Experimental Ethnography at the University of Pennsylvania. And I am China Tolliver, photojournalist, reproductive justice advocate, and founder of Rise Up Midwife, residing in Oakland, California. We would like to share with you a note about format. This audio project weaves together co-host reflections with ethnographic storytelling and first-person accounts of birth and resistance by Haitian women, mothers who have been imprisoned, and other survivors of a global practice known as hospital detention. This is where patients are imprisoned within hospitals. It is used to force families and communities to pay outstanding surgical bills, and it is overwhelmingly used against black women, indigenous women, and women of color during their birthing experiences. The original conversations in Haitian Creole were shared from participant cell phones over the mobile WhatsApp application. We've chosen against the journalistic convention of starting stories in Creole and then drowning the voices out with an overlaid translation, and instead include dramatic rereadings of the accounts in English by bilingual Haitian Creole speakers. Our opening and closing sounds come from Nelin, a Vodou singer, and her mother as they're sorting beans from their garden and sending out a song about respecting the vulnerable. <laughs> The time immediately following birth in Haiti is a very special time. It's a time when families pull together into intimate circles of care and embrace the new life and the new mother. During the pregnancy, these families have nourished mothers and the small lives within them, and they've also been nourished by them. After birthing, if you were to give birth in a hospital or at home, you could expect certain things. You could expect to have a prepared room for you to rest indoors. You could expect that you would be tended to by the women in your family with whom you are closest. You would expect that your mother and aunts, perhaps a close cousin too, would help you wash your body. They would tie your waist to strengthen you while caring together for you and bonding with your new baby. They would unwrap the baby's small blanket, undo the clothing to bathe her gently, look closely at each and every part of her body, leaning close to examine her 10 tiny fingernail beds, the inner creases of her eye, the folds of her neck, her legs, her back, and hair. Tiny yellow bottles of Johnson & Johnson's baby bath are collected in the corner somewhere, a treasured smell. So complete is this care that each and every soiled diaper would be the subject of conversation. 
the contents not shut up quickly and then tossed away, but fastidiously examined for any sign that something isn't right. Any trace of blood, any evidence of a chill. And like fashion, you too would be tended to, your body washed and cared for as it sheds over many days the fertile home that it's grown in itself. It is a messy transformation, one filled with raw, organic smells, textures, things that go in, things that come out. Even in that intimate bodily space, others would be there for you. Your feet would be wrapped in the thickest socks, the bed covered in fabric as comfortable as can be found. A nest for you while you undergo the emotional and physical transformation of separating your body from that of a child. And that experience, right there, that's the kind of care that Haitian mothers rely on after birthing. Nell is an herbal healer in her family and community in central Haiti. She's a mother of five children, and over her lifetime, she's helped to manage the care of more than 100 mothers, babies, and families during that first precious month. In our conversations about pregnancy, birthing, and postpartum care, she told me how important it is for women to be surrounded by family and community care during this time. Mothers and babies rely on that support for their well-being and for their survival. When a person gives birth, whether coming out of the hospital or giving birth at home, Women and her family bathe her in a prepared womb in the house. They bathe the baby and put it down to rest. And what about the mother? She is laying down with her head wrapped from the cold, socks on her feet, and the woman make food for her and then boil tea to help heat her up and thus to also help heat the baby up. And after that, they make food. You can boil plantain for her. Plantain and fish is particularly good. Or plantain and meat. And after they give her that, they go and put beans on the fire as well. Because you know, a child just came out of you and your abdomen is empty, you need to stuff it up with food. You put beans on the fire, make a big spread of food, all for her so that she can eat a lot. At night, again, you make tea to give her to help keep her body warm. When you are pregnant, when you are about to give birth, you can't be outside. You should tie your head with a place to rest because that which came out of your body, it's a child. An entire child has pushed its way out of your body and your body and your muscle are open and unhinged. It takes 15 days, sometimes 22 days, before you can safely bathe in water that hasn't been properly heated. Before the band show is finished, and even then you do it with great care, the muscle of your body have to harden and tighten back up. People prepare food for you and bring it to you to eat. You sleep there, you drink your tea there, tea's on, Never plain water. Even if you end up in an emergency birth in the hospital, once you and the baby are safe enough to leave, that is what should await you. 
smelling those cooked herbs, tasting the tastes, feeling the gentle forms of touch and bodily nourishment that have been passed down to you. Women and families using this language of bodily care communicate to other women that their lives and the lives of their children are cherished, that they will be helped to blossom and flourish, that they are valued. Most of all, it communicates to them that they are not alone through the suffering and the joy and the pain of this metamorphosis, through the intense dangers that it can bring, through its triumphs, you're not alone. You're with others and others are with you. Even if, and especially if, your baby dies, that care is what should await you. Even if you die, that is the circle of care that you leave your baby in. And that is because women don't bring children into the world all on their own. They bring them into the world with others. When we talk about the post-birth experience in Haiti, that is what we want you to imagine. At least, that's how it's supposed to be. As the title of this audio project suggests, the post-birth experience is dramatically different for many women in Haiti today. Women like Naomi. Naomi is a mother who gave birth in a foreign mission hospital in the north of Haiti in 2019. This hospital is run by a U.S. board of directors with the center of operations less than two hours from Philadelphia. At the hospital they run with donated funds in Haiti, Naomi received life-saving surgery and was then immediately imprisoned when it was discovered she couldn't pay. When I first spoke to Naomi, she had already been imprisoned for more than a month. Hi, my mother that ended up giving birth in the hospital, a mission hospital not a state hospital. After the birth, the baby wasn't well. He needed to be put in an incubator. While he was in the incubator, the nurse told me to go stay with the other mothers who couldn't pay in a space outside. God delivered me and the baby from death, but I was not really thoughtful at that time. I didn't have any money to pay. I didn't have the means to pay. So we had to stay there in the open space together. Me and the other mothers and our babies. All of us mothers together with our babies. The way just fell upon us. The sun was hitting us. The dirt from the wall was all over us. You couldn't even think about moving an inch. The security guards didn't let you move at all. You couldn't turn left and you couldn't turn right. If you didn't have someone from your home and your family who could bring you clean clothing, you had to stay there, dirty, in the sole clothes you gave birth in. That's how it was. That's what happened at the hospital. That's the misery. They, they really abused us. We need to make things better. After being forcibly held for more than a month, Naomi was finally released when a Haitian midwife at Mama Baby Haiti Birth Center collected donations to ransom her from the hospital, along with the other women she was being held with. 
How on earth did her birth experience at a mission hospital end up going so wrong? Like many other pregnant women across Haiti, Naomi traveled for hours after being turned away from other clinics before finally showing up at the gates of a private foreign mission hospital. She had to pass through a series of poorly supplied public clinics before finally making their way to a hospital capable of surgery and one willing to take her in. Images of Haitian mothers giving birth, struggling between life and death, is an all too familiar image to aid workers and Christian missionaries working across Haiti. In elite fundraisers across the US and mega churches, as well as hospital galas, it is used to pull on heartstrings, loosen checkbooks, and evoke charity. Currently, Haiti has the worst infant and maternal birth outcomes in the Western Hemisphere. This fact leads to much discussion amongst NGOs about how to provide pregnant women a safe place to give birth. But far less has been said about what happens after they give birth, when mothers who cannot pay are imprisoned within these very same mission hospitals, a situation that is not unique to Haitian women, but is faced by women giving birth across the globe. In international media, the practice has one name. It's called hospital detention. But the Haitian women and their family members that we spoke to call it alternately kidnapping, captivité, kembemun, prison. In English, kidnapping, captivity, holding people, prison. Not all countries have simply decided to live with the practice. In response to a widely circulated report on hospital detention in Burundi in 2006, the president declared the practice illegal practically overnight and mandated free health care for women and children under the age of five. In spite of being a very cash-strapped country, Burundi worked to reallocate international and national funding over the course of five years in order to make health care without imprisonment possible. In the Philippines, the practice has also been made illegal, and in other nations like Colombia, it's routinely challenged in court cases. In Haiti, mothers, families, organizers, and birth workers have long raised flags about the practice, with Haitian midwives active in the fight against it. Haitian medical workers themselves are also important critics of the practice. A Haitian human rights worker is actively organizing against it, and local community leaders throughout Haiti periodically work to address the issue on a local level by negotiating with hospitals for the release of patients that they're holding. For our listeners in the U.S., it can be difficult to imagine the conditions in which Naomi and her newborn child were faced to live in once it was determined she wasn't able to pay her medical fees. When I met her, she was eager for me to share photographs and stories of her and other mothers as they lay on thin pieces of cardboard atop concrete slabs in overcrowded spaces exposed to the weather, the heat, the wind, the rain, the cold. The iron gates and guards were a constant reminder that their freedom hung in the balance of a sheet of paper with dates and notes and amounts. This was the ultimate judge and jury. In the prison side of hospital prison, there are no provisions for food, water, bedding, electricity for mothers and their babies held under constant lock and key. The women lean on one another for support, physically, mentally, emotionally, creating a kinship. Patients craft these kinships in spite of the intense bodily coercion and control of hospital prison. 
Hospital prison is a place where surgical attention is financially supported through strategic forms of neglect and abuse. It's a space where financial credits become bodily debts, but also one where exploitation is met with daring resistance and resounding refusals. China and I call it the hospital prison in order to call attention to mothers' experiences of hospitals as places for both saving lives and imprisoning them in order to extract cash. This is an understanding that poor mothers have been living with for decades. And although hospital detention has only been discussed very rarely, if at all by anthropologists, local journalists across the world continue to publish report after report. The practice of imprisoning patients is an open secret in public health. As epidemiologists Karen Cowgill and Abel Ntambwe discuss in the foundational work on hospital detention in Limbumbashi, although new mothers and babies are not the only targets of this practice, they form an overwhelming majority, making it a gender violence as Cowgill and Ntambwe discuss. This gender violence is primarily used against Black women, Indigenous women, and women of color and their babies. In the International Journal of Health Policy Management, Handiani et al. identified 52 countries where patients are routinely imprisoned like this. Robert Yates, the director of the Global Health Program at Chatham House, says the number is likely much higher. Then there's Pierre, who is an organizer against the practice in Haiti. He knows how widespread it is in his nation. He explained to us that this practice of forced debt captivity has affected members of his own family and the families of practically everyone he knows. It is endemic to the functioning of many foreign-operated NGO hospitals in the nation, as well as private hospitals and clinics. But it is also used in precarious public hospitals that routinely close because they don't have enough funds to function, to pay doctors, or to keep lights on. So where did this practice come from? Professor Kakuji Yumba Pascal at the University of Lubumbashi is a bioethicist and an African law historian who has worked on the issue of human rights and hospital imprisonment since 2014. Kakuji argues that the practice of imprisoning mothers is illegally used by hospitals under the logic of something called sequestration, or the removal of property from its possessor until a dispute can be resolved. Kakuji argues that the specific act of holding patients as prisoners within hospitals exploded quite recently, emerging in sub-Saharan Africa in tandem with neoliberal health reforms, such as the Bamako Initiative, drafted by the WHO and UNICEF and adopted by African health ministers in 1989. These initiatives were used to solve finance problems in primary health care by making primary health care profitable and self-sustaining. This was done through a multinational agreement to increase commercialization and the implementation of healthcare fees in hospitals and clinics. A solution many hospitals developed to keep poor patients paying was to imprison patients within hospitals in order to motivate families to collect funds to free them. If you've been kidnapped by a hospital, receipts are the only visa you can hope for in order to escape. These fragile pieces of beige and white paper carry the heavy ink of doctor's notes. The ink is often so heavy it tears through the leaf of paper like tissue. On the page you'll also find marks from administrators 
They contain dates. When the patient came in, what the patient was given, when they were healthy enough to leave, and another date you wait for that you probably dream about if you're being held. The date someone pays for your release. They don't list the incarcerated days in between, usually, but those days live on in the paper nonetheless. In that space between the day you came and the other day you wait. Your waiting is only ended by a dated stamp that says you've paid. The stamp is usually pressed in colored ink. It bleeds through and garbles the letters in the hospital logo. It's that stamp that guards look for before allowing women to leave. Maria Cheng is an Associated Press journalist who has done in-depth on-the-ground reporting on hospital detention, following the practice and interviewing mothers affected by it in countries across Africa, Europe, and Asia. She spoke with us about what it was like to discover how clear-cut and open the practice was at the administrative level, with hospitals sharing the papers, receipts, and spreadsheets that they use to track and release prisoners. One of the things I found really striking about going to the countries is I was told by a lot of academics, oh, they don't record this, there's no evidence of it, you know, nobody tracks it. But if you go to the hospitals and you ask them, they had really detailed records, you know, handwritten columns like, you know, who came in on this date, what they had, how much money they hadn't been able to pay. And, and in some columns, you know, the date they escaped. Guirlande is a nurse who has seen these receipts in play repeatedly. She's watched how hospital guards learn to see some people as patients and others as prisoners during their rounds at the hospital. You must know that the situation for women in Haiti is really complicated. Pregnant women don't find support. If they go to the hospital to give birth, there are hospitals that will forcibly hold you for doing so. If you don't have the money to pay the hospital, they grab you. Yes, they grab you. They hold you in captivity. They hold you in God's view. They don't let you go home. If there are people who can feed you from your families, they have to bring food to you at the hospital. If you don't have family, if your family can bring food every day, other mothers in the same situation try to feed you or give you little gifts of food from what they have. They are hospitals where this happens constantly. They hold mothers constantly. They don't let you go at all. They pay tons of guards, tons of security to stand there and guard you every day. They make the gods study your faces. So, they know who is being held, who doesn't have access or freedom. Even if moms are really thirsty and need water, it doesn't matter. They can't leave to go get water. They have to have a family member come to the hospital to go buy them water in the street. At U.S. operated Catholic hospitals where Naomi was held prisoner, three separate guards check receipts before allowing patients to leave. These guards are there to protect the hospital from theft. What becomes clear after they are hired is that according to the hospital, the things people most often try to steal is their own bodies, is their own freedom. 
The guards who work these security jobs often come from the same class and even the same communities as the mothers that they are hired to imprison. And hospitals know that alliances can form there, friendships, empathy, and kinship, even though these relationships are, of course, deeply uneven. So it should come as no surprise that hospitals put tremendous pressure on guards to stay in line, to know their place in relation to the prisoners. When and if women escape, guards are fined the entire amount of the hospital bill. This, of course, can end up being hundreds upon hundreds of dollars. These hundreds and hundreds of dollars are deducted in advance from guards' pay. That means that guards are forced to work for free until their debt to these hospitals is paid off. And that threat to their families is a pretty strong motivation for continuing to work in these conditions. Okay, so you have a hospital with administrators, with receipts, and with guards. One question that China and I have been asked a lot after people hear this is why? Why under these prison conditions would women seek healthcare at all? Likna spoke to us of her decision. She is a Haitian mother from OCAP and a survivor of a hospital prison. When I was pregnant, there was no hope of going to the hospital. I didn't even let that hope get into my head. There was just no way. Because I already know I didn't have a way to get money at all. In Haiti, they don't see people's lives. They don't see your life at all. It's money they see. Because of that, I never let that get into my head, that I would have the chance to give birth at a hospital while I was pregnant. But at last, my baby come before it's time. He was born at seven months. They had to put him in an incubator. I went into labor at home. I saw water running down my legs, and it was mixed with blood. I decided I just had to. I had to go to the hospital. I really, really didn't want to lose him, even if I didn't have a dime to pay the hospital. Fine. I had to save his life. You never know. I thought God might be able to send someone to free me from the prison after I gave birth. I went there with faith. Then, after everything, they put me in a little space, a space I couldn't leave. Likna didn't want to lose her baby. Faced with the possibility of that death, she decided to seek help at a hospital literally on a prayer that she might not be imprisoned, or at least that she wouldn't be imprisoned for very long. But she was. Since at least the early 1990s, imprisoning mothers like Likna has become a standard part of delivering Western biomedicine in countries around the world. How and why has this injustice been so easily adopted and exported? And how have maternity wards become spaces of such intense control and coercion? The answer is one that goes back farther than the 1990s, 
to the way that the Atlantic trade and enslaved persons treated women and their future children. Dorothy Roberts demonstrates that black women's reproductive journeys have long been targeted as sites of coercion, control, and capitalization. In her gripping book, Killing the Black Body, Roberts analyzes the continuous legal, political, and social war on black motherhood and black reproduction, starting from the era of chattel slavery. There is a clear connection between reproductive injustice Haitian mothers endure as a result of medical detention and obstetric violence against black and indigenous women in the U.S. The black maternal and infant birth outcomes in the U.S. are the worst of any developed country in the world. Black mothers in the U.S. are three to four times more likely to die from birth and postpartum complications. According to Dr. Joya Currier-Perry, racism, not race, is the cause of black maternal health disparities. Julia Chenieri Opara and Black Women Birthing Justice speak of the situation that black women face in maternal care as one of obstetrical apartheid which they define as the convergence of patriarchal medical heroics, racialized medical violence, economic exploitation, and the cavalier disregard of black women's well-being that can be seen in experiences of medicalized childbirth across the globe. Obstetrical apartheid limits the kinds of health care that black women can access, and it exploits them within these narrow limits. In hospital prisons, obstetrical apartheid occurs with the help of technologies that emerge out of prison systems. How and why are these prison technologies used in hospitals of all spaces? Over the past century, carceral strategies have spread, reaching far beyond the tall walls of prison spaces. These strategies have been used to manage the public, to manage people in debt, to manage students, to manage family relationships, as Adrian Roberts and Genevieve LeBaron have explored. They note that carceral strategies generate relations of unfreedom, thus sustaining the widespread inequalities that capitalism is built on. That is to say, carceral technologies become capitalist technologies, and the healthcare marketplace is called a marketplace for a reason. So that means to talk about hospital prisons and black mothering, we also need to think about capitalism, its histories and its present moments. Because capitalist technologies, as the black radical tradition reveals, are racial ones. Cedric Johnson speaks of how capitalism and racism grew up together, forming the basis of a modern world system of racial capitalism, whereby value continues to be extracted differently from bodies according to race. Saidia Hartman analyzes how black life continues to be devalued through this, quote, racial calculus, as she calls it. Hartman calls attention to racial health care inequalities, as well as incarceration, as part of what she calls the afterlife of slavery. Sadia Hartman, as well as Ashada Shakur, Christina Sharp, and Sarah Holly, call attention to the fact that racial capitalism is a gendered racial capitalism. They show how black women have been continuously targeted, but have also built up and passed on strategies of resistance and refusal that undermine and elude the systems they were built in. Alice Weinblum's book, The Afterlife of Reproductive Slavery, argues that black women's reproductive bodies are crucially important sites of exploitation by racial capitalism, as well as longstanding sites of contesting it. 
Reproductive justice is a transformative activist and research framework that calls attention to the ways that Black women, women of color, trans Black folks are police, controlled, and coerced during their reproductive decision-making. In the case of hospital prison, strategies of policing and coercion not only hurt mothers and babies who are in the hospital, but they also hurt mothers who know of the practice and often decide not to get emergency care out of fear of ending up in prison. This was the case for Naomi's neighbor, who we'll call Irene. Irene knew if she showed up at the hospital with no money, she and her baby would end up in a potentially deadly situation. They would be under the constant watch of a guard. They would be exposed to the elements and left without food and water. Her family might not be able to afford to come visit her from hours away. Irene knew that home birth might not go so smoothly due to the signs from her pregnancy, but that hospital prison was a certainty. She decided against it. Her infant died during the delivery. Hospital prison, like other birth injustices, entraps families into constrained decisions. What emergency is emergency enough to face certain trauma? How much debt is a mother's freedom worth? When is neglect better than abuse? And are there situations in which abuse is better than neglect? The repercussions of these constrained decisions echo through mothers' bodies and those of their babies, reaching out into family networks, into neighbors' lives like Irene, into communities. Remember Gearland. She's witnessed the ricocheting effects of hospital prison in very intimate ways. Because Gearland's not only a nurse, of course, she's a child to her parents and a sister to many siblings. Three of these siblings have been held before by hospitals. Three. And Naomi is one of them. Gearland spoke of the stress, fear, and lasting effects of Naomi's imprisonment on her entire family. Of course they hurt me. Yeah, it's something that was really, really stressful when the hospital had my sister. It messed us all up. We were beating our heads, trying to figure out what we could do about it. We were asking everywhere if we could fall alone so we could bring her to the hospital and take her away from that suffering. It's something that has stayed edged in our spirits. And that hospital, it's a place we don't set foot in at all, no matter what kind of problem we have. I, I can't even find the words to explain to you, to express to you how that disturbs our family. It is a moment in time that we have a family we will never forget. Hospital detention places an emotional and financial burden on families, which leaves long-lasting scars. There are two financial debts. The first, of course, being the medical fees, and the second is the continually occurring cost of providing food, clean clothing, and transportation. The told and untold sums of money for many Haitian families could amount to a year's wages. 
Because their families often take predatory loans to escape hospital prison, these women and their communities face long periods of indebtedness and further poverty, in addition to facing enduring birth trauma. That birth trauma affected Girland and her decisions about her own future medical care and that of her family members. It also affected Naomi's brother, who was side by side with her when she went into labor. His name is Marcel. He studies English at school. You know, I, I, I was there when my sister, she, she gave birth. You know, she went, to the, she went to the first hospital when her water broke and she started to, to bleed, which was the state hospital. So we went together with her, me, my mom, uh, my older brother. And when we arrived at the hospital, there was no doctor available because the doctor, the nurse, they were, they were on strike, you know. So we waited for a long time and we think, okay, eventually the doctor is going to come, the doctor don't come, you know. Uh, we, we did not go to the, uh, the mission hospital because uh, we know they, they don't treat the people good over there, you know. Uh, they, they, they don't care about your, your health. They only think about money. That's the only language they understand, money, you know. And we did not want to go to the mission hospital, but uh, we had no choice. You know, even though my, older, my oldest sister, she went to the mission hospital before, they, they kidnapped her too, you know. So anyway, we, we, we went to the mission hospital and uh, she had the baby. They, they take the baby from her, they put him in the um, in incubator, I think it's called. And the baby was, was there for several days, you know, many days. And the doctor was going around, the doctor come, he explained, hey, you know, the, the, the baby's life costs money. Baby's life is expensive. And if my sister did not give the money, for, for the baby, they, she, would, she could not leave the hospital with the baby until the, the bill was paid, you know? So, and now a month later, the entire time, the entire month, even my sister, they did not let her leave the hospital, you know? Uh, they had a guard, security guard, they, they watch my sister the whole time, you know, they watch everything she do, every minute, to make sure she, she, she don't try to escape or, or anything like that. It's crazy. It, 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 it's, it's completely crazy, you know. Uh, my sister, she was not the only one there. You know, there were other mothers too. But they, they try to help each other, you know, they protect each other. If, if one mama needs something, uh, the, other mama, uh, the other mothers, they would go, they would try to find it for her. You know, they share things. Uh, they talk to each other about the, the situation the condition of each other, the, the hospital, but, you know, they, they did not do so, they did not speak uh, openly, you know, because the hospital, they don't want them to talk very much, you know, so those those doctors who, who are not Asian, in those missionary doctors especially, they, they wanted the people to stay quiet about that. For Marcel, Girland, and Naomi, Hospital imprisonment, much as they tried to avoid it, was becoming a shared post-birth experience in the family. You see, hospital prison works to put stress on the relationships that women have to one another, to their families, to their communities, and to their babies. It then reconfigures these relationships through ideas about debt and credit, aid, capital, 
and collateral. The effects of this effort to reconfigure women and babies as a form of property held for debt ripple out from patients themselves, connecting to histories and spreading forward into possible futures. But in a space that is created to be dangerous, unlivable, and to give families the highest motivation to find money, people like Naomi tenderly craft acts of refusal that upend the system. In spite of the long-standing institutional silences built around hospital imprisonment and protecting it, patients and allies have worked against it since its very beginning. Nurse Gearland personally witnessed how mothers created avenues of escape for themselves, sometimes in small acts of sharing and care, and other times in harrowing escape attempts. I remember in 2017, there was a woman called That woman, she came to the hospital where I was doing my internship and she gave birth. She was from Port-au-Prince, but ended up in the hospital in Cap Haitien in order to find care. She ended up owing 12,000 Haitian dollars for that birth. The baby was born too early. He needed oxygen for a while to stay alive. So much oxygen. <laughs> didn't have any money to pay the hospital. They held in captivity. They had her for a really long time. They had her baby too for a really long time. After they taught her about that bill for oxygen. Now, let me tell you what happened next. I saw this with my very own eyes. This is not something someone told me. I saw it with my own eyes because I was training as a nurse at the time. I was doing an internship in pediatrics at that hospital. One day, entered in neonatology to see her baby whom they were holding captive. She crushed up a small pill, a kind of medicine that can make babies sleepy. She put it in a little mech and then gave it to the baby so that the baby would sleep and stop moving, stop crying, and fall asleep. Right there, by his hospital bed, she crossed that pill and gave it to him. When he was sleeping, she quickly took him and put him in a black bag that she had managed to get hold of. She acted as if the heavy bag was filled with dirty clothes, clothes she could send to her family to wash back home, and then they would send back clean clothes. She walked to the gate saying she was going to send dirty clothes back. She then bolted through the hospital gate and just kept running. She made past that gate and then tripped and fell. Losing a sandal, she got up and just kept running. Left her sandal. The gods saw what was happening, but they couldn't catch up with her, and she got away. She saved herself. She escaped with her baby. What may feel like extreme measures to some, for this Haitian mother was the only path to freedom after months and time in hospital prison. 
Haitians have a very rich and proud history of resistance, revolt, and revolution. The threat of incarceration for an undetermined amount of time evokes both direct and indirect acts of resistance. Mothers may form bonds with the guards and nurses who secretly work to free them. They may protest to the hospital administrators for their freedom and form alliances with other incarcerated mothers for food and water. Mothers loving on and caring for one another, tending to each other's needs and building kinships is an act of resistance. When Likna first told me her story, she emphasized that she was able to share food with others. I admit that at first I didn't understand how important that act had been to her. When we were at the hospital, we put ourselves together. We ate together. When others had food, they would send me some. And when I had any, I would share with people who never had people bring food to them at all. There were some people who never had families bring them any food at all. They had no one. I shared with them. These mothers were not able to be tended to, as they'd come to expect of a post-birth experience. Likna and Naomi and the brave mother Girland spoke of, whose name has been retracted, were deliberately prevented from accessing the healing acts of love and protection that normally come with the birth of a child. Likna and Naomi both told me how they found a way, in the midst of that, to not simply survive a tremendous act of resistance in and of itself, but to share food, to engage in the act of socially nurturing others and being nurtured by them. They didn't have that precious period of time that they needed in a safe space in their house. They were facing mental torture. Their bodies were experiencing extreme feelings of hunger that come with labor and childbirth and with bodies driven to produce milk. Like the unnamed mother's brave refusal of captivity through which she saved herself and her baby, Naomi and Likna's acts of care undermine the hospital prison. They thwart the prison's attempts to transform them and the other prisoners into collateral alone, into property that secures a debt. At a time when birthing people should expect to receive the most social care and attention, Naomi, Likna, and the other mothers were totally removed from that care. The fact that they found it in themselves to care for one another and for their babies is not something that should be expected, and it is nothing short of revolutionary. Strategies of defiance, escape, and care abound in hospital prison. In the face of profound dismemberments of care, women draw upon care as a practice of refusal and of resistance. Using these acts, they create themselves and each other as precious, soulful, meaningful human beings. This effort is the most sustained challenge that has been launched against hospital detention in Haiti. That women create themselves and one another as meaningful beings in the face of a beeping, buzzing, slicing collection of instruments used to extrude capital out of bodies. The goal of this audio documentary is not to seek justice on behalf of Haitian mothers and their families 
We believe there are brilliant Haitian activists and organizers who are capable of finding solutions to the pervasive practice of medical detention, and we want to support that process. We believe that restorative justice for this issue in Haiti can only be found in the voices of Haitian mothers. Thank you for listening to Birthing Resistance, Stories of Hospital Prison. This recording is just one part of an interactive conversation that we are hosting on our website at birthresistance.com. The site will include expert voices of mothers and their families, as well as the voices of participating researchers and reporters on the issue around the globe. We will be posting audio conversations with Professor Kukuji Mba Pascal, Catherine Cowgill, Maria Cheng, Professor Abel Ntambwe, Robert Yates, and many others through the month of November. Check on the website for a full list of our credits and links to the amazing works that made this piece possible. Bagage, 